a federal judge upholds California's ghost gun ban, plus a conversation with Open Secrets and Massalia on the gun group's election spending. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter right now if you want to get better insight into what's happening with guns in America. You'll get a newsletter once a week into your inbox. We won't flood it with a bunch of other emails. And then if you like what we're doing, you want to support our work and you want to get a deeper understanding of the issue, you can also buy a membership, uh, which is actually on sale right now through uh, Monday when this episode goes public. So get 20% off right now on a membership. We don't do these sales very often. I encourage you to go and, and sign up if you're interested in getting exclusive access to hundreds of additional pieces of news analysis and stories that you won't find anywhere else. But on this week's episode of the podcast, we are talking about campaign finance. We're talking about the upcoming midterm elections, who is spending money in them, how much, where, and why it matters. And we have a wonderful guest with us. It's uh, Anna uh, Mas- Masley. <laughs> I already messed up Good your enough. name. I apologize. <laughs> uh, but uh, <clears throat> she's the <laughs> uh, she runs uh, editorial investigations over at Open Secrets, and so she's very knowledgeable on this subject. Uh, please, please correct my pronunciation <laughs> of your name before we move on and tell people a little bit more about yourself. Thanks for having me. Um, it's just Masol- Anna Masolia. Um, you did good. You did so better than most people do, honestly. Masolia. Masolia. <laughs> I, I apologize. Perfect. Um, and I work at Open Secrets. We track money in politics. I work on our edit- with our editorial and media department and also on our investigations, tracking spending by a variety of different groups. I hope your husband lets me... <laughs> Stay in the hockey, fantasy hockey league we are in together after butchering your last name. <laughs> but, well, I do hear him cursing about the hockey league every night. Occasionally your name does come up in that. <laughs> yes. Well, anytime I can pull off a win in that is impressive because I'm very bad at it. So, uh, but, you know, Lachlan's a, a Devils fan and I'm a Flyers fan. So there's not a lot of love, love lost there. Uh, so we have a good time, but, but anyway, uh, this week we, I uh, brought you on cause we, I want to talk to somebody who is an expert in campaign finance because it is an incredibly complicated subject. There are a lot of laws that govern how and when you can spend money in political campaigns, how you can raise money, what, when you have to disclose donors, all these things. And so you end up with really political groups that people know of as one entity, but they're actually like six or seven different legal entities connected together. Um, certainly that's the case with the National Rifle Association, which is the biggest player in, in this space as far as guns go, right? That's still true today, isn't it? It is, especially with things like outside spending, now that the NRA has launched its super PAC. Um, compared to prior years, the NRA still is not quite at the same level of spending, but we're seeing it's still outspending groups like every town, at least when it comes to that federal election spending. Yeah, and I think the the two big players for the NRA when it, when, we, when we're talking about campaign spending, right, are its super PAC, which is called the NRA Victory Fund, and then the, the regular PAC, which is called the National Rifle Association of America Political victory. victory. They're very original with that. And then, of course, you have the National Rifle Association of America, the NRA Institute for Legislative Action, and Mm -hmm. a variety of other NRA action groups. And so you just have a number of different groups with very little variation on their names that are all kind Mm -hmm. of transferring money between each other and then ultimately either into advocacy or politics. And so it can be very confusing, I think, for regular people to try and, or even reporters like me, to try and track down all this stuff, which is why people uh, like you are so important for this to help us understand what's really going on. And the, those two groups, though, the Political Victory Fund and the Victory Fund, they've raised somewhere around, what, $24 million this year combined. Uh, now they can only, they can, they exist as different things because they do, uh, they can only do certain things uh in each group legally because of because of the way campaign finance law works right that is correct so the super PAC the NRA victory victory fund is the newer group it's able to raise unlimited money from pretty much any source 
and can spend unlimited money on candidates. That means it can spend on ads that say vote for, vote against a candidate, boost them. It can't coordinate with a candidate. Whereas the NRA Political Victory Fund, very similarly named, can only take a certain amount of money from either uh, individuals or other or other specific sources, um, depending on how much they how much what the source is depends on how much they can take from them. And so it has that those those contribution caps, and it can give money to candidates, but doesn't really do as much with those in, with the independent spending and in support of them. And so they have right. their own kind of lines that they have to uh, keep into. But they can also transfer money between each other, right? Absolutely. The um, NRA Super PAC in particular has taken money from multiple other NRA arms. Right. And this is, of course, not specific to the NRA. The Every town has its own PAC and Super PAC as well, although it seems to focus far more exclusively on the Super PAC. Is that right? That is, yes. Um, we've seen the NRA, or sorry, the uh, Everytown Super PAC spending this cycle as well, taking money from uh, its 501c4 arm. So this is something that's not supposed to be a political entity, but that can spend money directly on politics or can uh, give money to super PACs. That's something that's also not just unique to, of course, Everytown and the NRA. It's an increasingly common phenomenon for these 501c4 uh, groups, whether they disclose their donors or not, to be fun to be funding super PACs, sometimes affiliated super PACs, and sometimes just various other political spenders. They can, of course, also spend directly on advertising. They're allowed to spend on ads expressly advocating for candidates, so that could be that vote for, vote against kind of language. But when that happens, they do have to disclose that spending to the Federal Election Commission. But they can spend as much money as they want on issue advocacy. So this would be things like attacking or boosting a candidate about an issue. Uh, thankfully, with groups like Everytown and the NRA, they do have issues they support. And so basically, right. for example, Everytown is saying this candidate's great on gun control. This candidate's awful on gun control or something much more divisive than that. Uh, they aren't having they don't have to disclose that spending to the Federal Election Commission, at least the 501c4 arm, the one that's not expressly a political committee, unless it is on TV or radio or a traditional medium aired 60 days before a general election or 30 days before um, a primary. Hmm. So it can be pretty difficult to track all these things uh, together and get a complete picture of the spending. But we do have, at the very least, some tools that give us a pretty good insight, right? That's, is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Um, hopefully, at Open Secrets, at least, we try to make a lot of the information available. That's one tool that um, I can kind of <laughs> toot our own horn a little bit. Uh, we put a, all of the different groups available in one place and create org profiles so that even though you have all of these different nodes attached to the same organization, you can just, for example, type in the NRA or Everytown and see all of their super PACs and PACs, at least all of the political committees that are attached to them and how much they're spending as well as how much they're spending on lobbying, how much they're putting into contributions and how much any affiliates are. Um, going to the source of where this is coming from, you can of course go to the Federal Election Commission site and really see that information. Um, or if you're interested in lobbying, going to the Senate and House site. So there's a lot of information out there. Um, it's just a matter of really looking for it. Of course, when it comes to online advertising, there's less disclosure around that, um, even though like with issue ads, for example, the TV and radio ads and those traditional ads are required to be disclosed to the FEC. Anything online really isn't, um, it, mm. unless it's that express advocacy for the 501c4s at least. Political committees, of course, are still regularly disclosing to the Federal Election Commission, so that's all on there. But some online ad platforms like Facebook and Google do make that information available. It's just very checkered. Right. But uh, you you actually have a, a piece up on Open Secrets that's uh, in the banner at the top of the site right now that you you helped write on this this exact issue. Now it takes a both a very long term look at spending on guns in American elections over uh, the years, but also has some really great information on uh, just this election cycle. For instance, um, I think uh, uh, you guys have listed out every issue. Right. And how much money has been spent on that particular issue uh, so far in this election. And right now uh, and now this is across all groups. Right. So we, we've talked about the NRA and Everytown. And those are the two largest groups. Right. Those are two largest players as far as money raised and spent goes. But there's, of course, there are other groups involved as well, especially on the gun control side. You know, you have um, 
the Brady Pack. So, well, first off, every town's super pack has raised $11.6 million this year, which compares to uh, the NRA super pack, which is at $7 million. Although the, um, the NRA also has its pack that it is really its main focus, it seems to be, at least as far as fundraising goes, uh, at $17.7 million through. And these numbers were just updated last night, right? They were, yes. Um, and so we're taping this on Friday, since I know you said this will air Monday. This is all coming in on mm -hmm. Thursday night. This is the pre-general election filing. So we're getting the final weeks of the election, seeing how much is being raised, how much is being spent by pretty much every group that's spending on federal elections. We're still mm -hmm. going to see some outside spending disclosures over the next few days leading up to the election, since that's something that gets updated every single day. But this is the last big disclosure of receipts um, and like a full itemization of disbursements that aren't those independent expenditures, the vote for vote against language. Mm -hmm. But in addition to every town and, and the NRA, uh, especially on the gun control, gun control side, you do have other groups that are raising a lot of money in their pack and super pack, which uh, <clears throat> would be, uh, you know, Brady, for one, has raised about three point three million, uh, according to the latest FEC. Uh, data here. And then Giffords especially has raised, you know, 12.7 million through its traditional pack, um, or uh, I guess the FEC calls it a hybrid pack. But, um, <clears throat> and, just and then clarify, you also have on the... So I was going to say what a hybrid yeah, pack ahead. is. Um, so a hybrid pack is basically both a, co a combination of a super pack and a pack. It's called a carry hmm. committee is the official term for it. So basically it allows that group to both give to candidates and spend on independent expenditures. Just to like kind of explain what that means the group is able to do. That's actually a new term to me. So why, uh, I guess, when, when did that start to be a, a new way of uh, organizing and why... Why aren't all the groups just doing it that way? Well, it's been around for a number of years. Um, you have to be very careful with segregated funds with this. Um, and so many groups prefer to just have independent groups um, kind of mm. exchanging funds uh, through that. For paperwork but purposes, I guess. I would assume so. Um, accounting can get easier depending on what their purpose really is. But in this case, there are specific restrictions that are that they're, subs that they are subject to um, and specific reporting rules. But in this case, um, this is they are able to both give and and to spend on independent expenditures. One of the things that super PACs are not able to do, and so you have to be really careful with if you have them both in the same group, is coordinate with candidates. Whereas PACs, in some to some extent, can uh, they can spend on they can give money to candidates. Um, carry committees can. So they, this group would have to be very careful with ensuring they're not coordinating if they're both spending and giving to candidates. Yeah, and there's actually a, an active case against the NRA for alleged coordination with the Trump campaign back in 2016 through its super PAC. So these can be, uh, you know, very uh, fraught in terms of uh, legal responsibilities to separate that that money. And and uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's interesting, though, that Giffords has uh, as <clears throat> this sort of combined group. It's actually more common than you would think. Those. There's a lot mm. of groups that have it. Um, the, hi the hybrid pack setup. Um, a number of groups have migrated towards that in recent years. But you still okay. have, of course, a lot of um, super packs and uh, um, and traditional packs as well. Interesting. So uh, the but so Giffords has about 12.7 million in their group, and then you have um, you have the National Shooting Sports Foundation as well, which is uh, another pro gun group. Uh, obviously, the, they represent the the industry. Um, they're the trade group for the gun industry. They raised about eight hundred thousand dollars in their um, uh, their trade association pack. And then you have uh, Gun Owners of America has a, a super pack, which has about a hundred thousand dollars in it. So they, you know, the, those groups exist, but they're under a million dollars combined uh, on the right. So most of the money on the right, when it comes to election spending comes from from the NRA. That's, is that fair to say? It is. They really are the leading gun rights group when it comes to political spending. Um, and when it comes to lobbying spending, they really overshadow groups like the National Shooting and Sports Foundation and the Gun Over and Gun Owners of America. Um, this is something that we've seen for a number of years. Um, as the NRA has faced more, more turmoil and issues in recent years, to some extent, the Gun Owners of America and the NSSF have tried to capitalize on that and at least 
assert themselves in their varying camps with Gunners of America kind of pushing for more politicization and pushing in from the right, seeing the NRA is too liberal and kind of pushing for more of those more um, further right candidates, whereas NSSF is kind of stuffed in for a less political approach. And so you have kind of them coming at it from both angles, but the NRA is still the predominant gun rights group, even with all yeah, of that. Yeah, money-wise. Yes. Money-wise, it's really not close. And not at all. The real competition here is between Everytown, uh, Giffords, and Brady, and the NRA, uh, because the, the other pro-gun groups are uh, relatively small. And in this particular area, obviously, there's you also have um, the legal legal fight and, uh, and and political battles that are separate from spending, but but in this area, it's the NRA versus the gun control groups. Right, uh, and that's kind of an interesting dichotomy because you have such a concentrated power with the gun rights groups just within that with the NRA, whereas on with gun control, you do have multiple different groups that are kind of these leading. Of course, every town being like to some extent the big group, but you do have. None, no independent group can really rival the NRA when it comes to overall money, at least over the years. We have seen gun control groups spending more increasingly on both lobbying and political contributions. They've really kind of, to some extent, caught up. Um, whereas if you look back maybe to election cycles, the NRA was, or, and, and gun rights groups generally were just completely overshadowing them altogether. Um, but yeah. they still are the, NRA, or the NRA and gun rights groups are still well ahead when it comes to fundraising and spending. Yeah, it seems like in this cycle so far, the NRA is still outpacing the combined gun control groups, but not by that much. Right. Uh, that, that's what these numbers would seem to tell us. And that's also what, uh, you know, the, the ranking that you guys have put together. And it goes back and forth too. Um, as we've checked over different filings, as we get them over the over the different months, we have seen certain months where gun right, gun control groups have suddenly gotten ahead of gun rights groups, and it, so it's much closer than it used to be. Um, where it, whereas it used to be not even a competition. Right, and I, I think we'll get a little bit more into the funding uh, of these uh, these groups later on in the show, but. Uh, first, I want to talk a little bit about um, where they're spending their money, right? That Because that's a big, important thing, right? It seems as though the NRA has focused most of its spending on six key Senate races. Uh, there's, uh, you know, what's Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, um, Arizona. Uh, I can't remember the other, I think Michigan is in there. Uh, but but they're, they're focused on the Senate almost entirely. Uh, on trying to uh, you win the Senate for Republicans effectively uh, as, as this election comes close. And I would say the gun control groups are mainly focused on that as well, but they've also put money into other areas that, uh, and some that are somewhat surprising as well. You know, you've seen, uh, you've seen every town, for instance, invests like a million dollars into a single Colorado state Senate race. Um, now that's perhaps a key race and it's one of the candidates that uh, they convinced to run, I believe is, is how that uh, occurred. And he's a, uh, the, the father of a mass shooting victim. And so, you know, they're very closely connected with that campaign, but it also, you know, could uh, be the deciding race when it comes to Colorado state Senate control after this election. Uh, so, you know, that obviously makes, there's logic there to why they're doing that, but they're, they're also investing in um, state secretary races in Michigan and Arizona, which is a bit more outside of the realm of, of the gun issue because state secretaries don't ha have any impact on gun policy. They most, for the most part, certify elections, which is why every town is spending in those races because they, they uh, are opposed to the Republicans running who have spread, you know, conspiracy theories about the 2020 election and talked about not certifying races. Uh, if they, you the wrong person wins basically. And so uh, it's interesting to see them go off in this tangent that doesn't have anything to do with, with gun policy though. It is. I think we've really seen gun control groups in particular diversify their interests where it's harder to draw that 
direct line between what they're spending on and where that intersects with gun control interests, um, especially when it comes to the Secretary of State races. I think that uh, it's almost more of that politicization of the groups where you are seeing it becoming more aligned with um, the Democratic Party to some extent and that agenda generally, um, and even just the greater good agenda that is being pushed um, by the left than explicitly and more an ideological agenda to some extent than explicitly a gun-focused agenda as other issues become more the focus of voters and kind of drawing people out for those issues as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, you, you've certainly seen the diversification in messaging uh, among both sides, actually, mm -hmm. in this election. You've had the NRA focus on crime, which is not an unusual thing for them to connect with guns. Although... I, the way that they've done it, I think, in this race is maybe a little bit different. Usually they're connecting them in the sense that if your gun rights are taken away, then you're more likely to be a victim of crime. And now they're, they've, they're sort of messaging crime in a way that crime is bad now because of Democrats who control, uh, you know, who are the incumbents in, this, in these races. Uh, so you should vote against them. And also they're opposed to your gun rights as there's perhaps still connected, but it's a little bit more of a distinct policy than it, than it used to be in some of their messaging. Uh, and in fact, you've seen them run uh, ads in Pennsylvania that are just about crime and don't mention guns at all. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's, you've seen every town do the same thing with abortion. Uh, they, they lead a lot of their ads with an abortion message, message even though that's not directly connected to uh, the gun issue. They do, tr they of course have a logic for this, which is that, you know, describing the, the person that they're running the ads against as extreme on both issues, but, uh, and they obviously, they draw a connection to the state secretary races by saying they're, um, you can't have pro-gun control candidates win if there's if they can't get their elections certified and so that, that's the tenuous connection they try to make but one thing i wonder uh, about that tendency this new tact that they've taken especially with the state senate or sorry state secretary races is uh this description that you've seen in uh, an interview done by uh, one of the Everytown leaders with abc news where they describe the reason they picked Michigan and Arizona in particular was this idea that their partners had, uh, you know, they'd worked with their partners to identify where spending was needed in these races. And that makes me think of the broader political network. Uh, you know, a lot of these major donors that back these groups have networks, right? They're, they're not usually just spending on a single issue. Um, and so it's, I think that's especially the case with Everytown and Michael Bloomberg, right? Michael Bloomberg is one of the largest political donors. He might be the largest political donors for Democrats in this, this cycle. And he gives money to all kinds of groups, not just Everytown. And so like, uh, how often do you see the, that kind of coordination on the sort of donor network level? To some extent on both sides of the aisle, we really have seen coordination between different groups. Um, it's interesting to see ideological groups being part of that more partisan grouping. Um, with Bloomberg, it's kind of interesting this election cycle. We really haven't seen him top the donor list, at least when it comes to direct federal political contributions in the same way that he has in prior cycles. Um, the last two cycles, he was within the top donor, like the very tippy top of the donors. This cycle, he's much further down the list. Of course, he's still on the list of, I think, the top 100 donors, but oh, he is not in the top 10, at least as of, and I haven't looked at pre-general filings yet. We're still obviously processing those, but at least I thought he just made a new, um, a new pledge, I guess. Maybe, maybe he hasn't he did. That hasn't shown yet. yet. So it uh, could be okay. showing up in them. And that's where the caveat of, I have not looked at the pre-general filings comes in yet. There's a good chance that within the last two weeks, and he does have this capacity, he could have poured $60 million into elections. And Michael Bloomberg had, absolutely has that capacity, as do many of the mega donors. But as of at least the Q3 filings, we were seeing um, the top of the list being George Soros. We were seeing other mega donors like 
um, Ken Griffin topping the list, um, um, Uline, like a lot of the other big names being really much higher up than Bloomberg this cycle. Of course, he was somewhat inflated during 2020 since, of course, he had his own presidential campaign and poured right. um, record sums dollars, into right? that. Um, yeah. But even in the cycle before that, we saw him as a top donor, I believe in the top 10 or top 20. Um, and this cycle, he, at least as of the Q3 filing, so through the end of September, that was not the case. And I will say that he also does have, while well, he has a history of being what the top donor or one of the top donors he also does have a history of pledging to donate uh, a lot of money in fact the exact same amount of money 60 million dollars uh and then not following through because that's what every time was supposed to spend in 2020 and then they just didn't even spend half that uh, so uh yeah i mean that, that's one of the interesting things about the political the reporting on this issue because a lot of times you'll get People will come out and pledge to spend money on certain things, and usually they'll follow through, but not always. And so it's important to actually check the records, uh, as you're describing here, and see whether they really did it, even if the the records can be delayed, right? We might not, we might not see it until uh, after the election's over, whether or not he actually spent this money. But Absolutely. Uh, We're still going to get filings in for months to come. Um, mm -hmm. And so it could be in the Q3 filings, but it also, or sorry, no, the pre-election filings, it could be um, another month or so to go. Um, and so we're continue, we're going to continue to see, at least for those final days of the election, if there is a last minute push from any of these groups or any of the major donors, um, that's something we'll have to continue to track. And so speaking of donors and Michael Bloomberg in particular, uh, Let's talk a little bit about the difference in funding or what we can know about how these groups are funded. The NRA, Everytown, uh, Giffords, Brady. Uh, how is there a, a significant difference? I think on the, the right, what you'll see a lot uh, or on the gun rights side of the issue, what you'll see a lot is the idea that uh, the modern gun control movement that has really come in to be a significant monetary force in elections and in lobbying, even if it is still lagging a bit behind what the NRA and the other pro-gun groups are doing, a lot of that is funded really by one person or by perhaps a collection of very rich people. Bloomberg being the top of the list, having created every town for gun safety uh, out of his old group, Mayors Against Illegal Guns. And uh, you know, is, is that tr true? Is that can we even know that really uh, completely? How well, you know, what insights do we have into how these groups are funded? So, looking at gun control groups, Bloomberg has pretty been pretty transparent about his contributions. So, many of these groups are super PACs and PACs where they're disclosing their donors. Um, and so we do know that Bloomberg is one of the funders with every town we know at least many of those funds are coming from him or Steve Ballman and his family. So we know a lot of the top donors there. Um, it is much of the money is still routed through the 501c4 arm of every town, which has been pretty open about Bloomberg being the funder and most of its funding there as well. And so a lot of that, at least we do know in, in that case. With the NRA and gun rights groups, we do have some information from their Form 990 tax records. So we're able to see how much of that money is coming from things like membership fees versus contributions. And it's a bit of a combination of both in recent years. Um, so a lot of their money does come from member fees. So this would be smaller amounts, um, primarily like individual members, but also from company members. And you do see also large contributions. Um, the Schedule B, this gets into like the more nerdy territory and I won't go into too much detail, but you do see multi-million dollar contributions in many years. You do see them paying for foreign fund, uh, for solicitation of foreign fundraising. You do see, but they don't disclose their donors. They don't disclose who those ultimate funders are. They don't disclose any of that. So we don't know who those big donors are. And many of that, much of that money even going to the super PAC is being routed through the 501c4. Um, and because it doesn't disclose its donors, we really don't know whether that large sum going into the 501c4 may be from another organization, a company, a mega donor um, who's an individual. Uh, it's really hard to tell because there's that lack of disclosure. Okay. But so it, it is fair to say, though, that the NRA's funding comes in large part from individual donors through membership 
dues, right? Um, yes, there's a lot of it from membership dues. But there's obviously also still some big, big dollar donations as well. Yes, it's a combination of both. Whereas on the Everytown side, um, it seems like it's mostly big, big dollar donations funding, funding that operation. Yes, and, they uh, don't have membership fees the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, you mostly right. have those large donors. Uh, I mean, you can look at obviously the the packs are a little bit more transparent because or the super, some of the the super pack funding can be a little more. Uh, you can at least tell who's donating now. You, like as you described there, you can get a uh, a transfer of funds from the C four, which doesn't disclose donors, into the super pack, and so you can't know exactly who's gave that money or how what it was made up of. But uh, for instance, the Evertown pack super pack does show that about half that money, I think about $5 million came from one person out of their 11 million, which was, uh, uh, I believe her name is Connie Ballmer, who is the wife of, I believe is the wife of Steve Ballmer, who's the former Microsoft CEO. And he owns the Clippers and he's extremely rich, of course, um, similar, similar area of wealth as, as Michael Bloomberg. And then about, Another half of the funding, most of the rest of the funding from that group comes from uh, that transfer from C4, which we believe comes mostly from Michael Bloomberg, but we don't know that for sure, right? Um, we know some of it. I mean, not for, it's hard to know anything for sure at this point, unless right. you've got, of course, the okay. disclosures on the penalty of perjury. But they have been very transparent through Bloomberg philanthropies about the grants that they've made. And so they have made okay. announcements when they give the funding. So we know. So that's how we know we don't. We don't know from you know the 990 filing or or IRA or uh, FEC documents because those are not required to be disclosed. But we know some of this funding because Bloomberg himself and his group, the groups that he funds, talk about giving out grants to. That's correct. Yes. So they've made announcements and made that information available through things like annual reports, press releases, um, that type of thing. Okay, so but so, uh, is it fair to say that there's a difference between how these two sides are funded? Uh, that's a common talking point. Do you think it's accurate? I think so, yes. Um, both in terms of disclosure levels, but also in terms of the amounts of the donations and one being much more reliant on those member fees than on a major donor. Okay. Okay, well, that's see, that's interesting. Now, I want to talk just briefly here about uh, spending over time. Right. We talked about what spending's at now, who's funding these groups, uh, but what does the spending look like compared to a couple of years ago or 10 years ago? Has the NRA's spending in elections fallen off? To some extent, um, but one thing that's worth noting is that even though they are not spending as much this cycle as we've seen in some prior cycles. So for example, in 2016, we saw them spend just a record sum um, in particular um, supporting Trump's election, but also in support of some other Senate races. Um, After that, it started really dropping off. Um, This cycle, we haven't seen as much, but the PAC has a lot of money cash on, a lot of cash on hand. The super PAC PAC does not, but there's nothing stopping the C4 or or anything from kind of transferring money over even the pack for transferring money over there. Um, and it's not uncommon, one thing that's really worth noting, for the NRA to wait until very close to the election, whether that be the final weeks or the final few months, before really starting to ramp up spending. It's something we saw during the twenty or the twenty twenty election cycle. Um, and sorry if I misspoke earlier, this was 2016 cycle, I think I might have said 2020, during the 2020 cycle, where they did spend a lower amount, um, but they waited until August to really start spending, and they ended up spending tens of millions of dollars. And so, right. again, that's a lower amount than they were spending before. It was about It was less than half of what they had spent during 2016, but it was still more than we had really projected because at that point, and this was August before the election, so they had had a year and a half to spend they had spent less than a million dollars, and in those final months of the election, they poured tens of millions of dollars in. And so that right. was something where you do see that last-minute spending, and it's not something that they'd have. It's certainly not wouldn't be a new tactic for them. Yeah, and and certainly right now the NRA's regular pack has about nine million dollars still in the bank, cash on hand. Now you you've I believe the, they don't they don't always necessarily spend to zero, right? 
No, they don't. It's not uncommon for them to have cash on hand, at least. Um, and we don't know the super PAC yet. Like it has, it doesn't have a normal spending pattern yet because it is much newer. We really have only seen it for one election cycle, but the NRA does often have assets, um, whether it be in their C4 or one of their C3s um, and also in the pack. So it's not uncommon for it to have a decent amount of cash on hand. But it also would fit the pattern that they are probably gonna spend a good chunk of that 9 million they still have left on on hand, either through pack spending or by perhaps transferring it to the super PAC so they can run uh, you know, independent expenditures run ads for candidates. Uh, that that would seem to be a, a likely thing that they'll do with it. And you don't see the same level of of sort of uh, cash left for the gun control groups at this point. Uh, that's right. So we it wouldn't be unheard of for the NRA to wait. I mean, we're getting really close to the line, so I'm not sure. I haven't looked specifically at the two weeks before elections since. Um, that's a very close period of time. I'd be curious what the NRA does in those two weeks. That's something that I would be kind of interested to see how much of that multi-million dollar spending in prior cycles was in the last two weeks. But uh, certainly within the last months of the election and even within like the last few weeks going into like the last like two months of the election, we've seen it recently. But I mean, we're getting down to the last 12 days of the election cycle. So right, right. it's hard to tell how much of a difference it's going to make at this point. But certainly yeah. we see the NRA waiting until the general cycles to weigh in pretty commonly. Um, it wouldn't be unheard of for them to wait and pour that money in last minute. Um, with every town, we don't see as much on hand with their political committees, but it's important to note that they do have an undisclosed sum of cash at their disposal, whether that be through uh, every town's 501c4, which could very easily transfer money into its super PAC at absolutely any point, um, or uh, any money at Bloomberg's disposal. There's absolutely nothing stopped, or any other mega donor, um, whether it be Connie Ballmer or Bloomberg, stop, nothing stopping them from having a multi-million dollar donation tomorrow that they could then be spent in the, last, in the final days of the election. And so that is, again, it's not something that we necessarily would be like, this is going to happen. This is a sure thing, but there's nothing that stops that from happening. So neither group has that restriction necessarily based on um, the limits of just what funds are showing up in the Federal Election Commission filings. Interesting. So we could we could absolutely still see major ad buys here before the election, even though it's even though time is ticking away. Potentially. Um, and, and so. No, that's obviously something we'll we'll have to to keep an eye on. Uh, but I, back to the long term trends, real quick. It sounds like the NRA has uh, that the struggles that it's had internally and with fundraising are having an impact in that it's not spending as much as it once did on on elections. Uh, now it's a midterm election, so you, it's not really fair to compare it to perhaps the presidential election of 2016, but we've already seen that 2020 was well less than 2016. And we're likely to see, although I think 2018 was one of their lowest points, right, for spending. And so I don't, they may be able to match that and exceed it, right? Um, it's tough to say yet. I haven't compared the two, but as of this mm -hmm. point, I believe we're still behind. I'm not sure. I would have to double check yeah. that. Um, so maybe, maybe not. But uh, the, the long-term trend there is fairly clear that the NRA is, while still a behemoth in space, is uh, receding a bit. While on the other side of the, the coin, you've seen the gun control groups really wildly increase the amount that they're spending in elections and lobbying, though still less than the NRA. It's, they're catching up. Uh, although, you know, they, they, they're catching up, but it doesn't seem like there's a Maybe that final stretch is uh, they're not taking advantage of the NRA coming down in their spending. They're really just kind of trying to stay within the realm of the NRA spending. It's, I don't know. Is that a, a fair assessment of this trend that we've seen? Like they used to spend almost almost nothing. Now they're up close to where the NRA is at, but they haven't exceeded them yet. Right. Really, so we're seeing. Right. So we're seeing at least it becoming a much closer race when it comes to money between gun rights and gun control groups. But we aren't seeing the same fine focus on gun issues from the gun control groups that we are with um, the NRA as much. I mean, both of them are really spending on a variety of different things, but really there's not this huge spike 
um, with the gun control groups as much as you might expect now that the NRA is facing those issues. It's just kind of continuing to gradually increase at this point, whereas we saw that larger spike over over the years. Um, mm. And so with this cycle, there's also one other thing that I think is interesting with the NRA's sort of shift in fundraising and spending politically is they're also spending through different groups now. So whereas mm. with uh, 2018 and 2020, we are seeing much a heavier reliance on their 501c4 for um, even for directly, especially political ads. Um, and so that was what they were using in addition to their pack. Um, and now they have the super pack and they're, they're much, they're relying on that much more now. And so you're seeing mm. kind of a different vehicle being used as their direct spending, primary direct spending entity, which is kind of interesting as well. Um, and they're also yeah. um, spending, you also have, of course, lobbying. So in addition to the elections, like that's one part of their influence, but you also have lobbying spending. And it's been kind of interesting to see how that's differed. Um, with last year, for example, the NRA spent a record amount lobbying, but this year it's been much slower. And so it's kind of interesting hmm. to see that kind of ebb and flow of allocation of resources there as well. That is interesting. Yeah. I mean, so that's one area where they're not necessarily shrinking, although they're less they're less this year than they were last year, but last year was a record in lobby spending. And they're more on par this year to about 2020. They're, they're kind of normalizing that. Hmm. Fascinating. I wonder, uh, there wasn't that much going on last year in terms of gun policies. That's interesting. Uh, there was much, much more happened this year. They passed the federal gun control law this year. Um, but e either way, uh, you know, I think the, the long-term trends uh, perhaps tell us something, especially because uh, you haven't really seen other pro-gun groups pick up the slack for the NRA. Uh, and, but at the same time, you know, the, these, these gun control groups, which are uh, funded in large part by mega donors who could give them presumably much more money if they really wanted to uh, outspend the NRA, just kind of haven't done that. Uh, and so that's, that's sort of a fascinating thing in of itself uh, to look, to try and, figure out why, why, you know, it's, it's like uh, they've funded them enough to compete with the NRA, but not to overtake them, even as the NRA has, has struggled a bit of late. And so, um, I don't know, I wonder how long that stands that way. I mean, it's hard to tell what the objective is at that point. Is it getting the candidates elected? Is it passing more legislation? They've had a pretty successful year on the gun control side, whether it's mm. worth pouring more money into it at that point, or is it just kind of keeping on par and continuing to push through with that. Um, yeah. And Good so, questions. Oh. And so it's tough to oh. say with that. And of course, this doesn't include all of the state level spending as well, because right. there's so much more there too. Yeah, which the groups have obviously, both sides have been very engaged at the, the state level in their sort of respective areas of red and blue states, uh, where you've seen uh, more legislative developments than at the federal level over the past decade or, or more. So, uh, you know, there's a whole nother aspect of, of spending and guns in, in American politics that we don't have time to get into today. But, uh, but I really appreciate you coming on and giving us that expert insight into what these groups are doing, how they work, how the, how they're spending, where they're spending, all, all this stuff, I think has been incredibly helpful. So we really appreciate you coming on. Can you tell My people pleasure. where they can, where they can find more from you? Uh, you can find more on opensecrets.org and look up all this information for yourself. Wonderful. Well, we're going to head over to the news uh, update now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with another weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Steve Gutowski. How are you this week, Steve? I'm I'm doing very well, Jake. Uh, it's Friday as we record this. So the, the Phillies are in the World Series as of tonight. And uh, hopefully by the time people are listening to this, They'll have uh, a two-zero lead. We'll, we'll see. That'd there you go. Nice. Yeah, go uh, At least one and one would be great. Uh, you got to get one out of that that away stretch there at the beginning. But we'll we'll see what happens. From your lips um, to God's ears. <laughs> yeah, I got. I did. I did get new jerseys to keep up with the pace. So this is a Mike. This is a throwback, Mike Schmidt. It's a new old jersey, I guess. Uh, and then I, of course, got a, a Bryce Harper jersey as well to complement my. Utley and Howard jerseys. Um, so I'm pretty well set at this point for uh, cheering the fightings on in this game tonight. I'm hope I'd love to go to a game too, but 
the tickets are like twelve hundred dollars a piece. So Whew. we'll see. That's but, a nuts. <laughs> see if the prices come down a bit, or if any any generous listeners want to. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> want to send me free World Series tickets? I'm I'm more than happy. But yeah. Uh, we got, anyways, we got some uh, big legal news this week. Uh, a court case where it's sort of a rare occurrence in the post Bruin world where we actually had a judge sort of uphold a modern gun regulation under this new Bruin standard, which you wrote about. If you want to tell us what happened. Yeah. So uh, there was a ruling out of federal court in California that upheld the state's, uh, you know, ghost gun, quote unquote, ghost gun ban or really a ban on possession of uh, unserialized gun parts, really. I mean, the the law there actually really extends beyond finished firearms into precursor parts or anything that could be readily converted into a, a firearm receiver or frame. Uh, you probably, if people have been listening to the podcast for a while, have heard those terms before because of the federal regulations. But in California... Uh, they're making it illegal to uh, possess those those uh, uh, parts or uh, or what they explicitly define as firearms, um, even if they're not functional. Um, and so, the uh, the judge found this law to be um, kosher as far as the Second Amendment goes because he ruled that the making of firearms. Uh, self-manufacture at the very least is not covered by the plain text of the second amendment because it does not literally have uh, to do with keeping or bearing of arms. Here's, here's a quote from uh, judge uh, Wu. This is George, George H. Wu, who's actually a George W. Bush appointee, which is just kind of a fun collection of words there. But um, <clears throat> he he ruled in, in his order, though it leads with a recognition of primacy of Bruin's plain text point, DD, uh, this is defense distributed as a plaintiff in this case, uh, there for the, you know, the founder is Cody Wilson. He, he invented uh, sort of the, the first well-known 3D printed gun, a gun that was fully 3D printed and now is sells uh, mills, like little CNC machines that people can use to make their own firearms at home, essentially. Um, they're the ones suing over this law. But DD seeks in its opening brief to jump ahead in the analysis to a historical tradition assessment and to jump ahead in Bruin to that decision's discussion of how to conduct such an assessment. Um, but, it, uh, <clears throat> but it has effectively attempted to avoid the necessary threshold consideration. Does the Second Amendment's plain text cover the issue here? No, it plainly does not. AB 1621 has nothing to do with keeping or bearing arms. That is the judge's, uh, this is effectively his, the logic in his case. It's, yeah, it's, it's sort of an interesting uh, wrinkle, I think, in sort of the post-Bruin landscape, uh, where a lot of the stuff we've been discussing so far has been, how well, how are states going to, or, or perhaps federal government, how are they going to find historical analogs for these laws to try to justify them? Whereas here, we don't even get to that step in the process where a, this is sort of the first time we've seen a judge say, oh, this regulation here, not even covered by the plain text. So therefore, we don't even have to get to that second step where I have to point to a historical analog. You, you, California is permitted to pass this regulation, which isn't something we've seen before. It's interesting to see if this perhaps other judges will take up this tact to just simply find ways to uh, shoehorn laws outside of keep and bear arms, which, even though, as you pointed out, it's sort of a perhaps a tendentious reading, considering that California law yeah. specifically defines these things as arms. So I'm right. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a way to short circuit the Bruin analysis. If yeah, it's not covered by the text of the Second Amendment. Then you don't have to find a historical analog uh, during the founding era to justify the law. It just isn't protected conduct at all. Um, and, and, you know, in a certain uh, in a certain way, that's not an uncommon thing to do when going through, you know, Bill of, you know, uh, Bill of Rights cases. You have to figure out, like, is this conduct even protected by the amendment in question? But I think this judge is taking that to a, a pretty uh, 
fanciful extreme, right? You know, you is basically saying that only literally owning and carrying firearms is permissible under the Second Amendment, or is protected at least, and anything else presumably would not fit uh, under under that that protection. And, and of course, the main problem, as you noted there. The, the very first obvious problem is that the law in question does regulate the keeping of firearms because it makes it illegal to possess any um, firearm that isn't serialized. And what, of course, they've expanded the definition of what a firearm is right. way out beyond an actual functioning gun to be, you know, precursor parts. And uh, we've talked about this at length on the show in the past, but you know, the, some of these definitions put forward by the ATF or hinted at it at the very least in footnotes, you know, would put even raw materials in that realm because it doesn't take very long to turn a piece of aluminum into a finished, uh, you know, 1911 frame or, or AR 15 receiver. So, um, you know, but that's that's California's decision to make, to try and label all those things as firearms and then try to ban the possession of them, uh, you know, without certain circumstances, like including a, a serial number and and making it registered right. with uh, with the state. So, yeah, that's the first obvious problem in this analysis is like in the particular case that he's talking about. It doesn't really make sense because the the law clearly does implicate the keeping of firearms by California's own definition. That's right. Uh, but then, of course, the the more <laughs> I think the the broader issue is this idea of trying to extremely limit what exactly the Second Amendment actually protects, what conduct it protects, to the point where it's rather absurd, right? right. Like. So does the Second Amendment not protect shooting your gun? <laughs> like <laughs> you can have it, you could own a gun, you can carry it around, but it doesn't protect, you know, you if you ever use it for anything. <laughs> right. You pointed out in a member's piece that uh, on this case that s several other court cases have found sort of ancillary uh, steps in the process of acquiring a gun are covered under the Second Amendment, like the Ezel case in Chicago about purchasing a gun. So that, again, goes to your point that there's sort of a weird way to try to carve out such a narrow ruling of what keep and bear actually means. Um, it's not really in line with what we've seen judges do in the past. Yeah, and Izzel is actually about shooting ranges. Right. Uh, and we've, there were a couple. There's a, there was also a recent Pennsylvania case that you wrote about um, right. that dealt with shooting ranges as well being covered by the Second Amendment. Like Chicago in the Izzel case had effectively zoned the city so that it was impossible to open a shooting range anywhere. Uh, and the seventh circuit court of appeals found that that's not uh, constitutional, that the, what they had done violated the second amendment because the second amendment protects not just a right to physically own and carry a firearm, but also the right to practice with that firearm and be proficient in its use. Uh, and so that means that governments can't just ban shooting ranges, uh, you know, and under this, this reading, uh, this extremely narrow reading of the second amendment, uh, you could, you could ban the manufacture of guns. You could ban the practice with guns. You could ban all shooting ranges. You could ban, uh, I mean, everything other than physically owning a gun or carrying it around. You could ban having ammunition in a gun. Presumably, right? Uh, you know, like because it's uh, that's and that's the issue with this is why I called it in the piece. You know, one weird trick. Like it's like such an obvious um, cop out right. to the Bruin analysis. Like it, it's just oh well, Bruin says I got to find a historical analog. Well, instead of doing that work, I'm just going to say that the Second Amendment doesn't cover making guns just keeping them right so we're done <laughs> i don't think that's gonna i don't think that's gonna work just right. like every internet ad that talks about the one weird trick that doctors hate or whatever like right. 
if you follow that medical advice from an internet, a scam internet ad, you're probably not going to get very far. <laughs> but, and it's the same way here. Uh, I will say though, that there is, there's a, there's a sort of core to this argument that will be important. Uh, I think the way that judge Wu has implemented it is not going to make it very far. I don't know that an appeals court would, would uphold California's law under this same reasoning. It might find another Maybe way the Ninth Circuit. It. Maybe the Ninth yeah, Circuit. Well, the Ninth, this is in the Ninth Circuit, right? And that's, and this is what Cody Wilson was, was concerned about. Uh, ultimately, um, you know, he, he said, uh, he told me, you know, you know what's going to happen. I'll notice the appeal and I'll get three Democrats on a Ninth Circuit panel. My concern here and the reason I'm so hot about this is it's like, all right, we're just going to make Bruin an even narrower test than we created under Heller. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's a legitimate concern in the Ninth Circuit. But honestly, I don't see them going with this particular reasoning for this case, because I, I think they'll probably try to find some other like they'll try to actually do a historical analysis and just try to find something that's some sort of regulation of commercial sale or some of firearms, something like that um, to base their ruling on rather than trying to say that making guns is just not protected by the second amendment whatsoever. Uh, but uh, Eric Rubin, who's a law professor at uh, Southern Methodist university. Uh, and I think we've quoted him before in the past he he said uh, he had an insight that I thought was more realistic use of this kind of application uh, in Bruin, of Bruin, which he says, uh, I could imagine a, a sliding scale, like the more regulated conduct is textually covered, the higher the government's burden to put forward a, a regulatory tradition. And I, I could see that gaining more steam at the lower courts than just trying to uphold every gun regulation by saying the second amendment doesn't protect right much much of anything <laughs> right um especially because again like this law does literally impl impact the keeping of arms right uh, even if you want to focus on the argument about making them the law in question here obviously impacts keeping arms because it bans possession of certain kinds of guns according to california itself but you could see uh, courts try to, when they're trying to do Second Amendment analysis, does, there is uh, a plain text portion of the Bruin test, right? It's basically if the the regulation implicates the plain text of the amendment, uh, then it that's when you have to start doing the historical analysis. Otherwise, it you know it fails. The the right. regulation fails. Uh, now, I, I think the Supreme Court itself has been uh, clearly engaged in a historical analysis of the plain text it, itself, too, like what the plain text means. It's done that in Heller and McDonald and, and Bruin. Like, it, it's not <clears throat> because, it, you know, it goes through the whole militia argument and, and uh, militia right argument and all of this stuff uh, and rejects them based on what the what the amendment was viewed as covering at the time of its adoption and so yeah that's where i think you're gonna see a lot of these attempts to narrow a read the reading of what the second amendment protects fail because yeah the, there was no ban on self-manufactured firearms in the founding era it didn't right. exist uh, as far as i'm aware and so I don't think it's going to be viewed by the Supreme Court as constitutional to put any kind of manufacturing of firearms outside of the protection of the Second Amendment. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> but the lower courts could try something like that, right? I mean, it, it, there's sort of there is this idea that the Supreme Court took a long time to follow up its ruling in Heller and McDonald with Bruin. And if, and this, the lower courts in that time basically ignored Heller. <laughs> like, I don't know, you know, putting it kind of bluntly there, but they came up with this two step test that applied a very loose 
version of intermediate scrutiny in most cases and upheld most gun regulations. And the court itself was not happy about that. That's what Bruin is mostly about, is a rebuke of the what the lower courts have been doing for a decade after the Supreme Court handed down its ruling. And so I, I just don't know that that strategy of we'll just try to minimize Bruin uh, and hope the court doesn't step in for a long time. I don't think that's going to work again. It's a different court now, and they'd already take the Bruin was the second gun case they took in two years. And they've taken, as you've written about, five cases, uh, vacated the rulings and remanded them back down for further consideration since Bruin happened. So, you know, I can understand why Cody Wilson or other program plaintiffs would be concerned that, especially in the Ninth Circuit, they might adopt these kind of uh, th these kinds of uh, uh, tests or standards that that seem to fly in the face of what Bruin held. Uh, but I, I don't I don't know that that's the Supreme Court's going to sit by and let it happen again this time. I think that what is a fair think? point because, as you pointed out, the Supreme Court does seem far more engaged, even in cases in recent years in gun cases they haven't agreed to take up. You've seen people write dissents from denial and criticizing the court for not being more engaged on the subject of the Second Amendment. So you really you have a, a court makeup of justices that want to see this test, at least in their eyes, properly applied, faithfully applied. Um, and so I think that's going to be the coming conflict is is lower court judges finding ways perhaps to try to weaken Bruin's impact and, this, and a Supreme Court standing watchful to see how Bruin is actually applied in practice. And I think that's going to be the coming rub in the future. Yeah. And, and I will say, too, that the rulings we've gotten thus far, I think a lot of people would have expected rulings like this one to start coming out of uh, federal courts that are less friendly towards pro, uh, you know, gun rights plaintiffs. But really, we haven't seen that as much. Right. We, we've even seen a number of uh, Biden appointees, Obama appointees strike down uh, in, you know, in Colorado. You wrote about this. Uh, they struck down the assault weapons bans there at the local level. And I think that thus far, even though a lot of a lot of courts have a lot of judges have voiced their displeasure about Bruin. Yeah, they've really applied it fairly faithfully to the, you know, it's up till now. And, uh, you know, you had the San Jose ruling, which uh, at least, you know, hand waved at doing a Bruin analysis to uphold the, the insurance requirement, uh, out there that if you don't buy some sort of specialized insurance to own guns, then the city will fine you a thousand dollars, uh, I don't know that that's going to there's there's a lot of these things where it's like whether they stand on appeal is, is a really good is a really open question. I think this is true for this Wu ruling as well. Like, is this really going to survive scrutiny? Are these because it requires a lot of uh, judicial animus towards the Supreme Court uh, and, and one that goes beyond just disagreeing with how the court has determined this test should be applied, but one that's willing to directly rebut it right. and go against it, which was not necessary in the post-Heller landscape because there wasn't a specific test that the Supreme Court articulated that, that lower courts had to follow. They sort of left it for the courts to decide on their own how to work this out. And then they came back and said, you're not doing it right uh, so here's, we're going to lay out exactly how to do it. And look, there'll probably be more times where the court's going to have to step in and say, you're still not doing this right or what have you, uh, and try to clarify like the scope of the second amendment. Uh, certainly, I mean, you know, the second amendment litigation is like a hundred years behind first right. amendment litigation right? or, or <laughs> 200 years really. Uh, so there's going to be a lot more stuff like this. I just don't lose. Overall, Wu's ruling is, is interesting in that it's an, a novel take on all of this that has some core elements that might be copied by other courts, but I don't think his ruling itself is going to 
survive very long if it is challenged. Yeah, of course. But we'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep tabs yeah. on it for sure. Right. <laughs> the, but that's all. <clears throat> that's all we got for this episode. Uh, if you appreciate the kind of reporting and analysis that we do here at the Reload, uh, you should head on over to thereload.com and pick up a membership today. We are uh, doing a sale. It'll. I'm going to end it the day this goes public on Monday, but uh, you get 20% off. We don't do these sales very often. So if you want to support our work and get exclusive access to hundreds of member only pieces, uh, you should join today. You'll also get the opportunity to appear on the show. We'd love to have another member segment soon. So if you already are a member, make sure you reply to your Sunday newsletter and let us know you want to come on and, and, uh, talk with us. I always enjoy those segments. And yeah, I mean, until next time, that's all we've got for you.